once again, let me remind you to use this opportunity as a a chance to practice listening and to use conscious breathing to help you listen. Let me try to make that a little bit more concrete using an example that has more to do with seeing than listening, but it's the same. Although uh, most of our walking, when we walk, um, and certainly the weather being the way it has been, um, has been indoors and with our our eyes looking downwards right in front of us, not kind of a zoom lens, not panoramic or wide-angle lens. But perhaps tomorrow or whenever, uh, when the weather is permits, probably some of us will take walks outside, perhaps in the woods or around the loop. I would suggest that it's a good idea. Sometimes you need to uh, do a, a vigorous walk. Again, continuing to practice. Um, for the most part, it's a, a practical thing. We suggest that you keep your vision narrow and not try to see what's going on because when you do, what tends to happen is the mind goes all over the place and we get lost. However, uh, let's say you're outside, not on a, a walking path with other people alongside of you. You're taking a walk through the woods. Uh, during the retreat, continue to use the breath a lot and uh, be careful about being too expansive simply because you might get lost. But in, in nature, it's uh, safer. Unless you're a botanist. <laughs> so let's say you come upon a tree or a very a beautiful plant or uh, the water flowing rapidly, some very beautiful uh, pieces of nature here. What you can do is stop your walking, stay in touch with your breathing, and look carefully at it. This is an external object, which... Uh, I know it sounds like it's not practice, but it is practice depending on how you do it. Um, and when we leave here, we'll be doing a lot more of that. But even here, we, we have to look, we have to pay attention during our yogi job and so forth. Uh, if you stay in touch with your breathing and you take a simple object and just look at it carefully, so your gaze is aimed at, the, let's say, the tree or a plant, but you're also in touch with your breathing. What you may find, don't force it, but at least one time, uh, the breath will help the thoughts subside, even stop for, let's say, four or five seconds or ten seconds. During those moments, there's just seeing. That is, uh, and sometimes we've had this experience, even without using the breath, uh, beauty is much more clear. When we're not thinking, beauty is really apparent. It's right there. It's so obvious. And it's more beautiful. 
So that was a moment of just seeing, and it was helped along by the breath, which cuts down unnecessary thinking, which helps keep you in the present moment. So it's the same with listening. You kind of have your breath going a bit. You're in touch with it as you listen. Uh, Practice that and see if it helps you listen. In interviews, I use the breath a lot to listen. Sometimes, as you know, there are many people one after the other, and uh, when one person leaves, sometimes a lot has gone on and you want to be fresh for the next person. It's not just a matter of time, but um, the echo of the person was just there. And personally, I found the breath to be tremendously helpful. I've been practicing it for a while of just how to really listen to the next person. The breath helps the mind empty itself and to just listen, just see, and so forth. We've been working with the breath in an exclusive way. Uh, Perhaps before I begin, I I would like to apologize. Uh, A few days ago, I referred to the fact that we were mainly working with contemplation one through four of the Anapanasati Sutta or Sutra whichever you like. And um, I pointed out some of you know it, and so I just wanted to kind of cross-reference that. that That's what we're doing now. And Narayan pointed out that um, that was probably based on assuming that everyone or a lot of people here know what that sutra is or even ever heard of it. And it's mainly a small group of people who are here from Cambridge Insight Meditation Center Sangha who have heard it till it's coming out of their ears. But the truth is, most of you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, we haven't re- I haven't referred to the sutra much. Tonight, what I'd like to do is give us a brief glimpse or overview of this sutra uh, to provide the context for the meditation instructions changing. I don't think there'll be time to go into it tonight, although by implication you may see the direction we're going. But I I want to give you at least some feeling for this sermon that the Buddha gave. And then tomorrow in the sitting after breakfast, uh, the instructions will be expanded quite a bit, actually. Anapanasati Uh, sometimes translated as the full awareness of breathing or mindfulness with breathing, is a sermon the Buddha gave. Uh, It's all about his practice. The Buddha attained enlightenment according to the evidence that we have, the the, uh, materials that we have remaining, attained his own enlightenment while practicing the full awareness of breathing. Before he gave the sermon, he had referred to the breath in other teachings, a little bit here and a little bit there. And this one occasion, which was during a three-month retreat, a rains retreat, the retreat went so well, uh, and this method was, uh, he then put out the method uh, in its uh, totality, which is 16 interrelated, independent interrelated contemplations of the breath, 16 slightly different ways of looking at breathing. The 16 are progressive in one way of looking at it. They unfold over time. 
they are interrelated and in one sense provide us with a kind of a, a training program which uh, covers all of Buddhism or what the Buddha taught. It's identical with the Satipatthana Sutra. For some of you who are new, this is probably a lot, but you will, if you find that you're drawn to this practice, you will certainly be hearing these terms. Satipatthana uh, and Anapana, Sati, those two are the two meditation teachings that the Buddha gave in this tradition, in the Theravadan lineage. And, of course, a lot of this exists in Mahayana as well. It's often not called this. Certainly in some schools of Zen, the breath is used in a very similar way. Satipatthana are the four foundations of mindfulness. It's kind of the declaration of independence of Vipassana. (laughs) If you only know that, it's enough. It's all in there. Everything is in there. And Anapanasati is simply the four foundations of mindfulness, only using the breath to fully ripen, develop them, and to lead to liberation. So the method is a method about human flowering. It's about inner flowering, how to, be, how to flower, how to become fully human. And it begins with very, very, it begins and ends with very simple just breathing. It's what we've been doing. The breath is referred to sometimes uh, as a kamatana, which is a meditation object. Or an, uh, this is sort of your workbench. It's where you get your work done. And it was referred to, and it is sometimes referred to, as the womb of Buddhas. So whether you know it or not, Buddhas are born from these. There is once you develop your, you, it, there are many, these. Uh, the breath is not the only kamatana. Fortunately, because it doesn't suit everyone. Uh, you're stuck with it because that's what's helped me the most. <laughs> and I hope it's helpful for you. Uh, give it a try. Really give it your full try. But if at the end of the retreat you find that that's really not so much your way, it doesn't mean that uh, you're finished, wiped out, hopeless. Not at all. It's just one approach. So this, uh, Buddhas are born, in other words, it's very important to find the meditation theme that's appropriate for you. I've used many others. When I came upon this, I knew this was home for me. I, I know it is for at least a few of you, and it may become that for some of you. Mostly, certainly in the West, when the breath is taught, when Anapana is taught, it's taught mainly to calm down. So that typically it might be in the early phase of a retreat, just as we've used it, maybe not quite as long, to use the breath to develop some calmness. And then uh, people will then switch into vipassana mode of practice, but then the breath is not part of that. And for a number of years, that's how I practiced, and that's what I thought it was, uh, until I learned that it's a complete practice. It's a, a total path. It's a way, W-A-Y, way of breathing, conscious breathing. Um, You could say it's the answer to the question, is the question, who is breathing? 
it's simply another way of coming at the question that probably all spiritual paths are concerned with. Who am I? What am I? And here, uh, at a certain point, uh, you become aware of the breathing is going on and on and in a sense there's a breather or is there? But the question becomes, who is it that's doing this breathing? Sometimes in practice, and some of you may have experienced this already, uh, you fall away and you experience the practice as if you're being breathed. That's when there really is no control. You're not controlling the breath at all. It's a real letting go into the breathing, a surrender. Often when we think we're not controlling the breathing, there's still a subtle controlling going on. But sometimes, all of a sudden, we find ourselves being breathed. And so when you look closely, you can see, indeed, certainly breathing is happening. But if you try to find out who is breathing, you can't find anyone. Well, you could say, I'm breathing, but that's just thought or an image. At any rate, uh, the work with the breath deals with all the issues that you've read about or heard in other uh, retreats about awakening, about enlightenment. I'm not going to go through each of the 16 tonight. I don't think it's necessary. What I'm going to do is try to capture for you the essence of these so you get a feeling for the context within which we have been practicing and also uh, the direction our practice will be moving in beginning tomorrow. The first four have to do with the body. Actually, before you get to the first four, the Buddha talks about the meditator sits cross-legged underneath a tree or in a forest or in a, an empty space, a room, and knows when, in, when the in-breath is happening and knows when the out-breath is happening. Just that simple, just that much, can take you quite a long ways. If you know when you're breathing in and you know where you're breathing out, that's no small matter. But we haven't even gotten into the 16 contemplations and the, the Buddha says that. That's because finally that's what it's all about. Breathing in and breathing out. It begins uh, with knowing that the breath is long or short, which is shorthand. In the sutra, it talks of it that way. Is when you breathe in long, you know you're breathing in long. When you breathe in short, you know you're breathing in short. Same for out-breath. This is shorthand for all the different qualities of the breathing. It's not just length. It would have to do with fineness, speed, temperature, all the different qualities that have to do with breath. And probably by now, we've been working on this, most of us, since Friday night. You've gotten to know the breath a little bit better. You're more familiar with it. You understand the different qualities that, uh, the, that make up the breath and the, different, and the changes in those qualities. I'm pretty sure that's true. Or you wouldn't be here. You'd have left a long time ago. And so... That begins, that becomes just a direct experiencing of a simple in-breath and out-breath and becoming more intimate with it, getting to know it. Uh, that is part of 
a more general awareness of the body itself. That is, just as in the Satipatthana Sutra, for those of you who know that sutra, the first foundation of mindfulness is Kayanupasana, knowing the body, mindfulness of the body. All the different aspects of the body, uh, a lot of it having to do with coming to terms with the true nature of the body. Looking at it from many, many different ways. Here, of course, the breath is part of the body. And all four have to do with the... You could uh, say that you begin... As you get to know the breath in these four, first four contemplations, you can't help but see that the breath is a powerful conditioner of not only the body, which is what's featured in these four, but the mind as well. That as, go, as, as the breath goes, so goes the body. If the breath is very comfortable, refined, quiet, it's a lot easier to sit. You can sit longer. If the breath is jumpy, agitated, and so forth, you may find it's true of the body as well. And so you begin to see that the the breath has a lot to do with the body settling down. Of course, you can't help, you can't miss the fact that the breath is also influencing the mind. As your ability to be with the breathing more continuously develops and you start to calm down, I'm fairly sure that everyone in this room has experienced that the mind calms down as well. Put it all together now. Do you remember, I think I used the image of a rider on a horse. At first, the rider feels separate from the horse and the horse feels separate from the rider. I mean, I don't really know that firsthand, but... But finally, let's say they have a good relationship. There's no separation. The horse and the rider become a, a, a unity, a unified field of action. What happens here is the mind, the breath, and the body become one. Uh, Whether you're trying to make that happen or not, perhaps you've experienced it. If you haven't, at some point you will, where you're sitting and uh, wherever you start out with the breath, whether it's the nose or the tummy or wherever, when it starts to flow freely and open up and your attention becomes more continuous, there's a real sense of... um, being planted, of the body being comfortable. Now, sometimes it feels as if the body has fallen away altogether, transparent. Sometimes you even get frightened, and we even open our eyes to make sure the body is still here. If the breath is flowing that freely, you might feel that. But certainly there's a real stability so that the mind and the body come together around the breathing. There's a kind of a unification. And we have a wonderful foundation now, To some degree or another, we've been approximating it. If you don't feel that uh, your sitting exactly fits what I just said, please don't make that into a problem. But to some degree or another, uh, the direction that comes from continuously attending to the breath is for the mind, the breath, and the body to become one. Another way of putting that is you're becoming concentrated now. You're becoming more peaceful. Shamatha is starting to emerge for you. And we enter into the second field of attention, which again matches uh, the Satipatthana Sutra, Vedana, or feelings. 
Now, here, feelings, for those of you who are, are newer to this practice, are not the same as emotions. They're simpler. Feelings are, it's also a mental event, but it's a direct response uh, to the, scent, the contact of the sense organs to the world. So that, for example, right, at any time, all day long, we're having pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. You taste some food, there's an immediate sense that it's pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. You hear a sound, it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is going on all day long, and much of our life is devoted, passionately dedicated, to getting as many good feelings as we can and scurrying away from unpleasant feelings as fast as we can. It's what brought us here, probably. We thought we'd get some good feelings out of it. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They'll say wise things, and we'll sit, and we'll get calm, and I'll just be so, well, it just feels so good, and then I'll come back, and people will say, you look so different and so relaxed. Other people have come back from there. They said it. So in this second set, uh, there are four. I'm not going to go into all of them, but what they have in common is their ways of uh, getting to know the different feelings that we have, the world of feelings. If we don't know our feelings, it can be a very big problem. We don't know... uh, when something is pleasant or unpleasant, or, or we're also we're victimized by our feelings, completely controlled and enslaved by them. For example, there's a tendency that if something feels good, then you want it, right? If something feels good, we want it. And once we get it, then we want to hold on to it. Big trouble. If it doesn't feel good, then we have a tendency to not want it to try to kill it, get rid of it, or get away from it. Again, trouble. If it's neutral, if it's not pleasant or unpleasant, there's a tendency to uh, be kind of bored, maybe spaced out, fill up that neutrality with fantasies and make up something new that will make us feel good. The mind is also a sense, sense in Buddhist psychology. So we maybe think some nice fantasies to feel good. A lot of suffering comes from our inability to understand this mechanism of how we grab after good feelings and try to hold on to them and get away from uh, unpleasant feelings, destroy them or eliminate them. It's quite tiring, too. The practice in this phase is using the breathing. Now, the consciousness of the breathing creates... Uh, very joyful and peaceful feelings. Some of you are beginning to taste them. Even if they're just weak right now, that you're, you're, in, you're in it. You're in the second contemplation. But you have to understand, those of you who are new, perhaps you've read about it or have t- spoken to people who've been practicing for a while, as your concentration develops and you're able to be with the breath for extended periods of time, you enter into very... St- deep period, very deep states of bliss and peace. 
it can be quite dramatic. I mean, deeper, a, a happiness that we've not tasted before. Sounds wonderful. The problem is, because these are such wonderful feelings, we also tend to get attached there, very much so. The deeper you go, the deeper the possibility of getting attached. And that's why it is helpful to have people around who've already uh, tapped that, tasted it, and learned how to appreciate it, how to enjoy it, and also how to, to let it go. Because if you become infatuated with just calm, here it is, we're doing so much to become serene. But if you've become infatuated with it, obsessed with it, and it's not difficult, there's so much agitation and restlessness and uh, stress in life. Isn't that one of the main words now? It's replaced organic and natural. Stress is all you hear. <laughs> well, supposing you then feel it, uh, you don't want to let go of it. And that makes, let's say, someone then says, well, now we're going to investigate our suffering. Do you think you're going to be interested? <laughs> we're going to look at our loneliness and our fear of death, because that's what we, that's, we're going to do now vipassana. Yeah, you do vipassana. <laughs> I'm just going to hang out and just uh, smile all day long. So from a short-range point of view, it's fine. And actually, we are attempting to uh, experience these feelings of joy and peace. We really are. But in an odd way, uh, when I got a glimpse of some of this in my own practice, it struck me as really quite hilarious when I realized that I see what these teachers are trying to do with me. This is a retreat elsewhere. They're trying to calm my mind so I get happy enough to look at my suffering. Struck me as a little strange. Uh, but that's really what it is. That is, to some degree, uh, we have to give... The mind is so afflicted. Nothing personal. I don't know most of you. Restless and, you know, grasping after this and pushing that away and saying the same things over and over and rehearsing and remembering things that were painful that are, that were long, long time ago and so forth. That to make it fit to do the practice, it's, it's good to, you know, give it a rest, give it a break, give it something that is enjoyable, that's uh, fulfilling, that's, to use another word that uh, I'm finding it harder to use, but it's a good word, nourishing. That one's coming in strong, isn't it? Anyway, it's nourishing. Some of you, you don't realize how much it's being used. Okay. Californians know how much it's being used. Because they're already on to something else, I'm sure. So, in this, uh, what we have to learn is the power that, that feelings have on conditioning the mind. And through uh, conscious, the, uh, the awareness of feelings, getting to know the realm of the feelings with the help of the breath. For example, if you, you've all tapped feelings, you've tapped what's called dukkha vedana, feelings of suffering. If any, do your, does your body hurt a little bit now? Dukkha vedana, you're in the second one, whether you know it or not. 
So that's uh, part of our practice. And while you're uh, bringing mindfulness, let's say, to the, the pain or the discomfort, in this practice, in Anapanasati, the conscious breathing accompanies you. It's like a good friend helping you to stay focused, a little bit like what I mentioned about in nature, if you look at a tree. And the breath is kind of just humming along quietly in the background, helping you to stay clear so you really can see the tree. Here, the breath, conscious breathing, is helping you to stay focused so that you experience the physical discomfort or whatever it is. So we get to know the body with the help of the breath. And the breath is part of the body. We get to know feelings. And then we move on to the mind itself. Here, uh, what is being... uh, These are all lessons. One way to look at uh, this sutra is that it's uh, providing us with lessons about the lawfulness of nature. One uh, way of looking at Dharma is that it's the lawfulness of nature, natural laws. And we're beginning to see, for example, just to see that when you pay attention to the breathing, it becomes more calm as you become more continuous with, the, with your attention. And as the breath becomes more calm, it, makes, it, it inclines the body to be more calm. You just saw a law of nature. And you see other laws regarding feelings. You see lawfulness in terms of uh, attachment and suffering. When you uh, crave, cling, and hold on, uh, suffering follows. And so we're learning lessons. The third lesson has to do with the mind itself. And another new term for some of you, but a very important one called kilesa. You could uh, very briefly say that what the, Buddha's talk, what the Buddha talks about uh, sometimes, sometimes calls the three afflictions or the three toxins. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Or the kind of wanting mind, the tendency of the mind to, to really want all the time. Or to really not want, to be aggressive, averse to things. Or delusion, to be confused. So, a good deal of the time, if you look at your mind, it's either uh, grasping after something, or it's pushing something away, or it's running around in circles, confused. Okay. In this, uh, this one, the contemplation of the mind of chitta, what we're seeing is, we're getting to know, uh, this is, a lot of this comes, it's all self-knowledge. But here it's very obviously self-knowledge. You're, as you look into the mind, you see the mind filled with greed. What is that like when the mind is filled with the urge to get, to acquire, to reach out, to strive for? What's that like? What's it like when that's not there? That's also part of this contemplation. All done while breathing in and breathing out. What's it like when the mind is angry, aggressive, What's it like when the mind is not angry or aggressive? Absent of that. All understood while breathing in in and breathing out. And how about when the mind is confused, in conflict, ambivalent, running around in circles, not sure of itself? What is that like? Just to get to know it. It's not to get rid of it or to judge it harshly, but it's get to know the mind when it's that way. And what's it like when when the mind isn't confused, when it's clear? 
all learned while breathing in and breathing out. So we've covered the mind and the body for the first three. And the fourth <clears throat> is when we move into pure vipassana. Of course, we've all, every step along the way, perhaps from the first breath on, there's been some insight that comes along, some learning, some wisdom. You can't help but learn about yourself, even though, let's say, officially, we're doing shamatha practice. No, I'm only doing serenity practice. Fine, that's, that's what's primary. But sort of in back of that is some learning that's going on. But now when we get to the fourth uh, set, which is the uh, contemplation of wisdom itself, here, you can best understand it by uh, there are 16, if you recall, so it's 13 through 16. 13 is continuously contemplating impermanence, the yogi breathes in. Continuously contemplating impermanence, the yogi breathes out. So we're seeing the law of impermanence. Where? On everything that went before. You can lo- learn about this law, let's say, uh, on long and short breaths. You can go back to step number one. If you just use this scheme to communicate. And let's say you are concerned with length of breath. You can develop wisdom from that now because as you look at the breath, you'll see uh, it's a certain length, then it gets deeper, then it gets deeper, then it gets more shallow, more shallow, then deeper again, then more shallow. And so you begin to see it's impermanent or any other quality. Let's say the breath is very fine. Then it becomes coarse. Then it becomes fine again. Well, we already saw that when we began in our becoming more familiar with the breath. Only now, that is in the first few contemplations, only now from a slightly different angle, we see that no matter what the quality of the breathing is, it doesn't last. It keeps changing. And if that law, if that lesson can sink into the heart, then that's central to... uh, to insight meditation, to vipassana work. Moreover, as you begin to understand impermanence, you begin to see uh, a lot of suffering that's, has, that out, is, grows out of the fact that things change, but we don't live in accordance with the fact that things are always changing. And you come to see, you come to learn the lesson of anatta as well, that there's no self. And you can go back to all the other steps. If it's feelings, fine. Whatever the feelings are, you can see that they're impermanent. Pleasant feelings become unpleasant feelings, which then become neutral feelings, which then become unpleasant again. You, uh, wherever you, you enter, you can see the law of impermanence at work. You're following the breathing, and it's very fine, very pleasant. Suddenly you have one nasty thought. That person next to me is too noisy. That's the end. Suddenly the breath changes and now it's become constricted and unpleasant. But now what we're trying to understand is not so much the feeling as feeling, but the fact that, but the fact that feelings are impermanent. Any of the qualities of the breath are impermanent. Any qualities of the body, the body is comfortable, it's uncomfortable, the knee hurts, then it doesn't hurt. The back hurts, then it doesn't hurt. Or even if you look at the hurt itself, the intensity changes. You go into your knee and it's 
seems to be very, very painful in the right corner of the knee. Then suddenly it moves over a little bit to the left and then it drops down a bit. And then it stops for three seconds and you think you're done with it. And then it starts in again. So there's a whole universe wherever you look and you can see it arising and passing away all while breathing in and breathing out. The breath is our friend, our anchor. And you can begin to see not only does everything that arises pass away, but it lacks self. We don't own any of this. It's not us. It's a phenomena that arises. There it is, uninvited. It does what it's going to do, and then it's gone. Like a cloud, like, any, like a wave in the ocean, like anything natural. And so we begin to see the nature of everything, of the mind and of the body, and now, this is the heart of Vipassana. And as we begin to see that, if we, let's limit it to the impermanence for the moment. As we begin to see that no matter where we look, things change. That everything that arises passes away. But we see it not as an idea, but we see it very, very clearly in this moment, in the next moment. We see a breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we're with the breath as it goes through the whole journey of being born, kind of going through adolescence, growing up and dying. Or or a feeling or an emotion. If we're in the mind, let's say greed is in the mind and you look at greed and you see greed emerges and then it operates for a while and then it falls away. There's no, no greed and then maybe there's a relief and then the relief is impermanent and then comes something else. It's, it's not wise to do this kind of work of seeing the arising and passing away uh, on a continuous basis unless the mind is calm and steady. And so you can understand why we've been uh, putting in this time, laying the, the foundation to quieting and calming the mind, working so uh, almost exclusively with the breathing, trying to calm down so that the mind can be pliable and workable and fit to now investigate itself a little bit more. Perhaps the mind is now able to look into itself and get to know itself. As we begin to, as the lesson, it's an, again a law of nature, as the lesson of impermanence starts to more and more sink into the heart, wisdom announces it. The universe is, is teaching it all the time and finally the heart is beginning to get it. Then the letting go starts to become a lot easier. We quite naturally start to let go. Which means to allow things to be where they are and what they are for as long as they are. And when they're over, we let them go. Because whether we want to or not, they will go. And we begin to get it. I see everything is changing. And if that's true, absolutely true, the only thing that isn't changing is that law. That doesn't seem like it's going to change. We're out of step. It's like dancing to, you're, uh, you're doing the foxtrot, but the hard rock is playing. I mean, it's not going to work. There's, our mind is not attuned to the way things actually are. And so now we're, we see the fact, the actuality of the way things are, that they are anything that arises passes. It's not just bad news. It's news. It's, it's just a fact. It becomes bad news very often because we hang on. So as we begin to see 
and get comfortable with the law of impermanence. And it may include some real disappointment and fear and whatever you go through. Everyone's different. But finally, it's inescapable that this law is at work and you see the beauty of it. But whether you do or you don't, the letting go becomes a lot easier. And in the last contemplation, one translation, I think it's a very interesting one, uh, the 16th. The 16th is, uh, is an experience of liberation. It's a giving back to nature everything that we have falsely appropriated from it. Nature is just nature. We haven't owned anything from the beginning. But through ignorance, me and mine, the attachment of, uh, of me and mine, and this is the core of the Buddha's teaching. At one point, the Buddha says all of his teaching has to do with the following. Under no conditions whatsoever attached to anything as being me or mine. But that's all we've been doing. We've been attaching to everything as being me or mine. And so the, the journey of uh, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion is beginning to see that that's really the heart of suffering. And so the, the last uh, set of contemplations is also called putting the burden down. There's one um, uh, cartoon that I saw in Japan, a Buddhist, in a Buddhist magazine there, and it shows uh, a monk with a very uh, unhappy look on his face carrying this huge burden and very deep footsteps. Uh, he's on the beach, incredible, like craters, very deep footsteps after him, and the burden is labeled me. So essentially, what we're putting down is who it is we think we are and what it is we think belongs to us. Well, it's never belonged to us and we've never been what we thought we were, except conventionally and in a very deluded way. We've been deceived. And so now, uh, it's not like anything new has happened. It's just we've caught up with the facts and we've giving, we're giving back to nature what we have, in a sense, falsely appropriated from nature. All in our head. I mean, it doesn't really matter to nature. Nature's just rolling on. And as we do that, it's called putting the burden down. At the beginning, we've, we've worked with the breath in an exclusive way. I may cut into our walking just a little bit, but it won't be much. One and two, contemplations one and two, where we spend a lot of time with the breath as the breath, and we've been doing a lot of that. But now the practice starts to really uh, open up. The breath itself is a gateway to all of the, the truths that are talked about in Buddhist teachings. It's a gateway. Just the simple in-breath and out-breath leads somewhere. It's all in us. To begin with, we're looking at the breath exclusively. But then more and more, we're investigating whatever is prominent in the moment. That's what we will be doing. And the instructions will be more detailed tomorrow. So that now, the breath will be used in two ways. One where we, we look at the breath exclusively. And in another way where the breath kind of is our partner. It helps us as we investigate whatever else. Feelings, as we investigate the body itself, as we investigate... Uh, lawfulness of what's going on, seeing that everything that arises passes away, 
And the breath is there, in, out, in, out, in, out, helping us stay clear. One way, uh, now sometimes I'm trying to anticipate certain difficulties. Sometimes when people get this teaching, at the beginning they feel as if they're trying to do two things at the same time. Like if you hear, well, when you say, be aware of, let's say, the pain in your knee or of the mood that you're in while breathing in and breathing out, it feels like I'm divided. I'm trying to do two different things. Uh, we can't, that's true. Uh, that can happen. But as the practice unfolds, it isn't experienced that way. Either it's experienced as the breath is kind of in the background while you're attending to whatever it is you're attending, but you know it's there. And by knowing it's there, it helps you keep awake. It's not two things. It's you're focused in on pain and the breath is right there in the midst of it. As the practice develops, my own experience has been that more and more becomes like a unified field. Uh, It's clearly not two things. It's sort of the breath is in the midst of, conscious breathing is in the midst of whatever it is you're talking about. Okay, we're not trying to make it be any special way. It's just to alert you to the fact that it, it isn't some kind of split jumping back and forth, but actually the breath is an intimate participant in whatever it is we're doing. Uh, the last uh, thing to say um, is that we're not going to be going through it. One way, to, one way to practice this is to go through all 16, one at a time. Another way to practice it is really the 16 are essentially two. Two steps. One step is calming the mind, which is we've been doing a fair amount of. And the second step is taking that calmness and now looking at whatever you want to look at because you'll see that it arises and passes away. Uh, the instructions tomorrow, I think, will make it a bit more clear. And either, probably the day after or even tomorrow will begin alerting you to seeing impermanence is something that we'll be emphasizing a bit because, well, of course, it's the heart of Vipassana. It opens up into all the other uh, facets of Vipassana. But a little later in the week, I would like to um, try what is called Maranasati to uh, introduce a form of death awareness. That is, there are methods, and I'll use one, uh, where we work with our own impending death in a way that I hope is very useful for you. It's not going to be required. Those of you who don't want to die, don't come. <laughs> you know, it, because how can, how can you force someone to do that? But I'm being serious. Sometimes uh, our life is in a certain way that it isn't the right time to contemplate dying. And if you feel that it isn't right for you, there's no stigma attached at all. Uh, we'll be, I'll be explaining it in detail, the meditation, and then giving you just a taste of it. So if it's something that you want to do, you can do it on your own at home when you feel ready to do it. I think the taste will be, probably most or all of us will be able to do it. And one classical way in which it's taught is to prepare the yogi first with uh, more familiarity with, with impermanence in general, impermanence anywhere, even just the breath, seeing each breath is different. And as you get the, uh, enter into that realm of impermanence, uh, then quite naturally that leads to an understanding of the big impermanence for all of us of death and dying. Um, 
Okay. Our approach will be Okay, we're out of time. Let me just leave it leave it at this. I've forgotten which movie it was, but in one movie, Woody Allen says, it, it, it's not that I'm afraid of death, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. Okay, okay. Um, being Vipassana yogis, being humorless, essentially. <laughs> Our practice is exactly the opposite. We're saying we are afraid of death and we want to be there when it happens. So, but we have to go into training for that. We have to learn how to see our fear of death so that when it happens, we can fully participate. So Woody Allen's having a better time now, but we're going to have a better time when it comes time to die. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.